This is a Rooster Teeth production. April 29th, 2013. National Airlines Flight 102, a Boeing 747, operating a cargo flight with seven people on board, is waiting to take off from Bagram Airfield in Afghanistan. On board is over 200,000 pounds of military cargo, including five mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles, all weighing at least 12 tons apiece. The plane is trying to get to Dubai, but has been dealing with several delays in their trip. The crew's finally given clearance to take off on runway three, and shortly after takeoff, the captain calls for the landing gear to be retracted. Almost immediately, the plane begins pitching up uncontrollably, enters a stall, and slams back into the ground while still over the airfield. Almost immediately, Al-Qaeda claims responsibility for bringing the plane down. Shockingly, a nearby driver captures the entire incident on a dash cam. What secrets does his dash cam hold? What brought down National Airlines Flight 102? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Chris and Gus. Hello, Chris. Hello. Back with another episode. Uh, I, I, I say this every now and then, but this is one I've really been looking forward to talking about. <laughs> I think it's a really interesting one. And we'll post on social. If you forgive us to follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod, we'll post links to the video. Like I said, this incident was captured on dash cam. I remember when this happened almost nine years ago now. It's weird. You know, I guess only we've talked about this before, like how only fairly recently there's been like a proliferation of cameras. So really only in the past 10 years or so, you have like a better chance of capturing an incident uh, with video footage. And this this is one of those. I feel like our, most of our uh, incidents are older because it takes so long for the investigation and the, yeah. and the process to go through. Yeah, that, it's a... Yeah, yep. you nailed it. Yeah, it's it's typically a very slow, lengthy process. It takes years. I mean, we talk about some of these where it's like the lawsuits drag on for mm-hmm. 10, 20 years. Like it takes a long time. And that's obviously that's not investigation. You know, the lawsuits yeah. are a, another matter. But but still, then sometimes like, those still, I feel like, change the way people perceive things, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's po- totally possible. But of course, you know, what we try to do is we try to focus on like NTSB reports, official investigating bodies and their reports to try to figure out what happened exactly. Yeah. But anyway, like I said, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, oh, and we have a YouTube channel, uh, mm-hmm. Black Box Down, where you can watch animated versions of yeah uh, of little segments of the show. They're really great. And also give us a a post or a share or tell a friend because you know we don't really do any marketing other than uh, <laughs> like word of mouth. So that that's yep. really we really <laughs> appreciate it. If you we really uh, need it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you see, that's a booger. He's uh, your oh, dog. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, yeah. he's, he's getting he's, word he's, of mouth right yeah. now. <laughs> he's, he's shouting at your neighbors to go uh, listen to Black Box Down. <laughs> Black Box Down. <laughs> yep. <laughs> go. Oh, yeah, got, Chris, get your dog away from the microphone. <laughs> okay. So, like I said, we're talking today about National Airlines Flight 102. Like I said, it was a cargo flight that had flown from Camp Bastion in Afghanistan. It was trying to get to Al Maktoum Airport in Dubai but it stopped at Bagram uh, Airfield along the way. It had ori- this plane had originally come from Chateauroux, France, uh-huh. and was supposed to, you know, was, was supposed to stop at Camp Bastion, was trying to get to Dubai. There were some problems with clearances, like they were having trouble getting clearance to fly over Pakistan, so that's why they had to divert to Bagram for a little while. They, so they were, you know, they were going in a roundabout way trying to get to where they needed to be in Dubai. So that had been a long flight, and they were just, you know, they were ready to be done. They were, yeah. they, I think... Off the top of my head, if I remember right, I want to say Dubai is only like a two, two and a half hour flight for them from where they were in Afghanistan. So like they were really close to their <laughs> destination and they've been flying for a long time. They just wanted to be done. But well, 
I mean, I guess it will come up, but is it not dangerous flying around Afghanistan at this time? I mean, obviously it was to some degree because... Well, but. yeah, um, obviously 2013, the, um, the U.S. was still heavily involved in Afghanistan. This was part of the reason that they, this, this flight was contracted is they were flying military equipment and supplies out of Afghanistan. It was like mm-hmm. part of the drawdown of the U.S. military, you know, scaling back their forces in Afghanistan. So that's why... They were there, but yeah, um, you know, these airfields can have unique problems that other airfields don't have. You know, they have to be a lot more careful about ground fire, like people shooting at the mm-hmm. plane or, you know, other things like that. Because it's, it's, you know, it's a military airbase that they're flying yeah. into. But yeah, so yeah, those are concerns. And like I said, initially, almost immediately after the plane crashed, Al-Qaeda said that it was their doing. So we're gonna have to find out, you know, did they have something to do with this? Yeah, I know I would be nervous. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm sure they they wanted to be done, right? <laughs> I'm yeah. sure they wanted to get get out of there, get to Dubai, and you know, be done with this with this flight, probably. So the flight was crewed by Captain Brad Hassler, who was 34 years old, had 6,000 flying hours. The first officer was Jamie Lee Brokaw, who was 33 years old, had 1,100 flight hours. And besides them, there was also a relief captain on board, who was Jeremy Lipka, who was 37 years old, and relief first officer Rinku Schumann, who was 32 years old. Besides the crew. There was also the loadmaster, Michael Sheets, who was 36, and the loadmaster is the guy in charge of, you know, securing all the load and making sure all the cargo is taken care of. Mm-hmm. And there were also two mechanics on board, Gary Stockdale and Tim Garrett, who were both 51 years old. This particular plane was a 20-year-old Boeing 747 with 76,940 hours and 10,813 cycles. So, I mean, it's a slightly older plane, but it's still good. Yeah. I say this regularly. The 747, in my mind, is probably like the... Easiest to pick out airplane. It's probably the most iconic airplane. I think, you know, even people who barely have a passing knowledge of aviation can point one out. It's the big four-engine plane. It's got, like, the hump at the front, but it's not, you know, two levels the entire plane down. Mm-hmm. But flying for a long time. Uh, nowadays, it's it's rare to see them carrying passengers anymore these days. It's, a, it's an older plane, but very, very iconic. Queen of the skies. So when they were on the ground at Camp Bastion, it was before they got to Bagram. Ground personnel loaded the airplane's main deck with about 207,500 pounds of cargo. The cargo included five mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles that were secured onto pallets by National Air Cargo personnel. Two of these vehicles were 12-ton ATVs, and three of them were 18-ton Cougars. So these are really, really heavy vehicles. I mean, that's like 24,000 to 36,000 pounds for each one. Yeah, that's (laughs) real heavy. Yeah, a car weighs, what, like maybe two to 3,000 pounds? Jeez. Yeah, these are very, very heavy vehicles. And the Cougars, since there were three of them, were in between the two ATVs. The ATVs were like on the, the front and the back, and the three Cougars were in the middle. The flight took off from Camp Bastion, flew for 1.7 hours before landing at Bagram at about 1.53 p.m. Like I said, originally they were supposed to go direct to Dubai, but the airline couldn't get overflight permission from Pakistan, so they had to go stop at Bagram. And then, you know, they were going to try to continue on to Dubai from there. Mm -hmm. All the vehicles were loaded in the center of the airplane's main deck, according to the National Air Cargo Loaders at Camp Bastion. The pallets were loaded about three to four inches apart, and no main deck floor locks were used on any of the units. When a plane, like when a 747 like this is, you know, configured for cargo, I think, you know, lots of times we think about planes and getting on with all the seats. You know, when it's cargo, there's no seats at all. It's just like the floor and then different tie-down points. And there's like a rails that the cargo that. can slide in and out of i mean i guess i might have in movies yeah you've probably seen it in a movie visually i'm like i mean just big metal floor yeah yeah oh castaway you've probably seen it like in castaway oh, yeah you don't get a good look at it obviously uh but 
that's like an example where, you know, it's, it's, there's no seats in it. It's just a bunch of cars. Oh, I thought of one. <laughs> this is a bad example, maybe, but the video game movie uh, Uncharted that's coming out. Oh, in the yeah. trailer, there's like cars coming out of the plane. I, I haven't watched the trailer, but I've seen some uh, like still images of it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's how you always see it in movies or, <laughs> or like Tom Cruise jumping out of a plane, <laughs> yeah. right? Like that, that's how you're going to probably see it normally uh, in a movie. So anyway, like I said, just to try to set the mental image, you know, there's mm -hmm. no seats. It's just like a big metal tube with rails on the floor uh, to slide cargo in and out of. Each of the vehicles was restrained to the main deck with 5,000 pound rated straps. The floor locks were not designed to secure centerline loaded pallets, which were considered a special cargo load. So the way that these pallets came on, they couldn't secure them to floor locks because it's considered special cargo. So they have to go like through a special procedure in order to like tie it all down and secure it. And they've got, of course, like anything in aviation, you know, the, the, the load master's got a handbook that tells them how to do it. Mm -hmm. You say pallet, they're not on like wood pallets, right? They're because they're on custom made pallets because these are since they're vehicles yeah. like they're too big for a traditional pallet so like the military made custom and i believe they were actually wood like custom wood pallets huh. to hold them in place and of course if you're listening i'll uh i'll put a photo of one of the vehicles on the custom made pallet uh, on social media yeah i i guess that's wood but that is a really heavy vehicle for it to be yeah. wood it's probably just so they can slide it like uh -huh. it, it you know the pallet's pretty flat it doesn't have a bunch of space between it yeah. it's probably just so they can slide the vehicle in and out without mm. the, the tires rolling yeah if i had to guess based on the way that it's designed that's what i would say it probably is yeah so according to the loaders the load master told them to use 24 tie down straps for each atv and 26 for each cougar if you hear me say nac it's national airlines cargo it's 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 in the report a lot so the nac operations specialist walked the main deck with the load master to inspect the securing of the cargo and said he did not see the pilots inspect the load. But, however, just to be clear, it's the loadmaster who's responsible for performing airplane weight and balance calculations, inspecting the cargo and pallets, and ensuring that everything's secured properly with the restraints. Uh -huh. So it's not necessarily bad that they didn't see the pilots there because they're not trained on this, right? They can just look at it and be like, oh, I guess. You know, they're there to fly the plane. Yeah. That's load why master. The, That's why right. I've never we've never talked about a load master before. No. But yeah, yeah. Typically, you know, we deal with passenger planes, so uh, you know, you, we wouldn't have to deal with a load master. Load master would be a weird thing to have on a business card. I just want to put that. Out. <laughs> yeah, I guess it would be, uh, unless <laughs> unless you're operating in very specific like yeah. cargo circles. It's like uh, then they know what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, that's besides the point. So the flight from Camp Bastion to Bagram was the first experience that the captain, first officer, and loadmaster had with heavy vehicle special cargo at National Airlines, and it was the first time that the airline had ever transported these cougars. After the airplane arrived at Bagram, it remained on the ramp for about an hour and a half and was refueled, but they didn't take on any additional cargo. NAC ground crew met the airplane during the refueling, but they didn't enter the airplane, uh, and they only spoke with the loadmaster at the entrance of the main deck door. So... Like we said, they didn't intend, you know, Bagram was not somewhere they were necessarily expecting to stop at. When they stop, they just refuel, no new cargo, nobody gets on the plane, they just talk, you know, through at the door of the planes. Nothing really changes while they're there. Uh, according to the cockpit voice recorder, while the airplane was parked on the ramp, crew members discussed that some of the cargo had moved, uh, and some tie-down straps had become loose, and one strap had broken at some point during the flight from Camp Bastion. Oh. Yeah, not good. Yeah. At about 2.28, the first officer told the captain about the busted strap, and the report says, and they discussed a knot. Ooh, a knot. Yeah. The first officer said they were 
a bunch of straps to keep the cargo from moving forward and a bunch to keep them from moving backwards. The first officer told the captain that all the straps that kept them from moving backwards were all loose. The captain then made a couple jokes and said, I hope rather than replacing that strap, I hope he's beefing the straps up more. The first officer told him that the loadmaster is cinching them all down, and 15 minutes later, the loadmaster joined the first officer and captain. The captain asked how far they moved, and the loadmaster responded with, they just moved a couple inches. The captain said, that's scary, and commented he didn't like that there wasn't a lock for them. He then said he'd never heard of such a thing, and those things are so heavy, you'd think they probably wouldn't hardly move no matter what. The loadmaster replied with, they always move, everything moves if it's not strapped. This was the last conversation they had about the straps or the cargo. Oh, it was strapped, though. What do you mean? Yeah, it was all strapped out. Yeah, he oh, said oh, see, everything moves if it's not strapped. Yeah, you're but... right. <laughs> they were strapped and they moved. <laughs> yeah. I think he's just trying to, like, downplay it. Uh, uh-huh. Be like, yeah, don't, you know, don't worry about it. But, uh, I mean, <laughs> these are, he- like, you, like, we keep in reinforcing. These are really heavy vehicles. Yeah. So, at about 3.15 p.m., the crew was cleared to taxi to runway three. They taxied normally, and at 3.25, they were cleared for takeoff. Seven seconds after rotation, so rotation's like, you know, when they pull back to begin their climb uh, off the ground. Uh, About seven seconds after rotation, the first officer called for gear up, and the cockpit voice recorder ended about two seconds later. After rotation, the airplane then went into a steep climb with a high-pitched attitude before it reached its highest point, entered a roll to the right. The flight then began a rapid descent and rolled back to the left side before striking the ground in a nose-down, nearly wings-level attitude. One witness who saw the airplane from the east side of the airport reported seeing a stream of white smoke with small puffs trailing behind the airplane before it stopped climbing. But air traffic control personnel did not see this. And we've talked about this before, about how eyewitness accounts can be sometimes unreliable if the people don't know what they're looking at. Yeah. But we're going to actually dig into that a little more here in just a bit. So how high up did it get before it came back down? So we don't know for certain because the flight data recorder also cut out when the cockpit voice recorder cut out. So there's no definitive recording of when it happened, but it was not high. Like I said, we'll share the video and you can see like, you can still see it from the ground, like a dash cam, which is you know not intended to be pointed mm, up. Yeah. A dash cam captures the whole thing. So it did not get very high at all. So it just barely went up. Yeah. And when it came down, when it struck the ground, it was still on Bagram airfield. Like it didn't even leave the airfield. Oh. It hit the ground about 590 feet northeast of the departure end of the runway, about 30 seconds after the CVR stopped recording. So it was in the air 30, 40 seconds, maybe. Then it crashed back down. Why did the voice recorder stop? See, that's a really good question. The cockpit voice recorder, the black boxes, which you expect would record, are supposed to record everything. By this point, we're in 2013. You know, they've figured out a lot of the problems that we've talked about some of the earlier ones. Uh Why do they stop? You know, that's going to, that's going to actually end up being a key question in figuring out what happened in this uh, incident. Then, of course, the plane was destroyed and all seven people on board were killed. Oh, it's wow. really disturbing to see because in the video, you see the plane climbing. It seems like it stops in midair and it's just like hanging there for a fraction of a second. Then it starts rolling and it levels out and it's like it pancakes straight down onto the ground. And there's just like a huge explosion, obviously, because of all the fuel and everything going on. It's terrifying to see. So, I mean, you're already asking a really good question, right? Why did the black boxes stop working? They're, you know, they're supposed to record all of this. They both stopped almost immediately right after they took off. Uh-huh. And also we have to figure out that witness on the ground, are they right about white smoke? You know, what, why would there be white smoke behind a plane? So we'll have to find out about that stuff. Well, if they're taking off and tilting up, anything, it would fall backwards, not forward onto them. Okay, anyway, go. Sorry. I'm just... yeah, you're try, you're, yeah, yeah, you're trying to, oh, that's good. You're trying to picture... 
what happens, you know, how gravity is affecting the load. So the final report we're going to use here is the one made by the NTSB. Because originally, the investigation was led by the Afghanistan Ministry of Transport and Civil Aviation. However, the NTSB assigned a U.S. accredited representative under the provisions of the International Civil Aviation Organization. And in October 2014, the Afghanistan Ministry delegated the entire investigation to the NTSB. So just a footnote there. So we are going off uh, an NTSB report here, even though it's on foreign soil, military air base. You know, we've talked about how mm-hmm. complicated these can be sometimes. Yeah. Who who investigates? Are there bureaus working together? So just uh, it's an NTSB report we're going off of here. So the first thing, you know, they're going to look for, you know, always they try to collect as much of the wreckage as they can. And, you know, in doing this, they find that there's debris on the runway that consisted of the airplane skin, tubing from the number two hydraulic system, fragments of the E-8 rack, and part of an ATV antenna. Okay, the important thing that I said there is the E-8 rack. Uh-huh. The E-8 rack is a shelf that the cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder sit on in the back oh. of the airplane. Oh. <laughs> so I, I, you can already probably see where this is going. Uh-huh. And just for reference, just to, I guess, to further give you a better picture in your head, this E-8 shelf in the 747 in particular sits about 104 inches off the ground. What is that, like eight feet, eight inches off the ground? It's like high. If you know, if you were standing and reached up, you couldn't reach this. It's pretty high off the ground. Yeah, but, but an ATV could. Right, a giant <laughs> 18-ton vehicle might be able to. So this debris already, just like you, you, <laughs> your O there, it strongly suggests that when the airplane rotated... The rear ATV moved aft, struck that E8 rack, penetrated the aft pressure bulkhead, and damaged the number two hydraulic system tubing, mm. which would explain the puffs of white smoke that the witness saw. It Ooh. might actually have been the, the hydraulic fluid draining out from the number two hydraulic system. Oh, so it wasn't smoke. It was fluid. Yeah, it was hydraulic fluid vaporizing. It vaporizes? Well, it was under high pressure. Okay. Uh, so, you know, it's going to... It's going to come out. Well, I shouldn't say it's under pressure. I should clarify. So it's going to come out and like mist and vaporize. Mm. So it's possible it was it was a hydraulic fluid. And on top of that, they examined, of course, the wreckage of the vehicles. And there was damage on the rear ATV on its upper left side. And there was an orange paint mark on it that's consistent with the orange paint on the black boxes. And the height Mm. of the paint mark on that ATV was about 104 inches off the ground. Mm. So it's like they can they can pretty much say like, oh, well, the only thing that was painted orange in the plane was the black boxes and they were 104 inches off the ground. Then on this ATV, there's an impact of orange paint 104 inches off the ground on it. Yeah, it's pretty conclusive that it uh, slid back and hit that rack and thereby hit the black boxes, which is why they stopped recording. Mm -hmm. On top of that, there was also a tire imprint found on a large section of the aft pressure bulkhead. So like, you know, those vehicles have, you know, spare tires on the back and yeah. it hit the back and you could see, they said on the wreckage, you could see the imprint of the tire manufacturer on that aft pressure bulkhead because oh, it hit wow. it so hard with so much force. That it like imprinted the metal? Right. Wow. So like I said, it hit the aft pressure bulkhead and we've talked about that before, like the aft pressure bulkhead, it's like the back end of the capsule that keeps the inside of the plane pressurized. Yeah. We talked about this with the Japan Airlines 123 incident where the aft pressure bulkhead blew out. So it's like, even though you're in the plane, you're in like a little capsule that keeps the pressure together. And that aft pressure bulkhead is the back end of that capsule that keeps the pressure in. So like I said, 
That pressure bulkhead was damaged. They also found damage to the number one hydraulic system on top of the number two hydraulic system, which we already talked about. And they also observed damage on the horizontal stabilizer jack screw assembly and presence of the tire marks on structure aft of the aft pressure bulkhead provide further evidence that the rear ATV moved aft until it struck these components. The important one that I mentioned there is the horizontal stabilizer jack screw assembly. And I think we've talked about this before, but it's basically like, it looks like a giant screw in the tail of the plane. And it's what controls the movement of the horizontal stabilizer up and down. So when like the pilots give, you know, pressure on the yoke, either forward or back pressure, that translates to the screw, like either, you know, turning in one direction or turning in the other, which moves the horizontal stabilizer up and down to deflect the air mm-hmm. to execute the commands that they're inputting in the cockpit. Okay. That's the best way to describe it. It's just like a screw that goes to that horizontal stabilizer and moves the entire thing up and down. Uh, well, I'll post a diagram on social media if, if you're having trouble picturing it. It's a big screw, huh? It's big. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you say screw, and I was thinking, like, it's got to be a big screw. Yeah, I should clarify. Yeah, it's massive because, I mean, the horizontal stabilizer, the 747, is immense. So this is, like, really, really uh, big. It's not like you're not going to go to Home Depot and find it. <laughs> Nothing beats the feeling of gathering around a warm fire with your family and friends on a cool evening, toasting some marshmallows, having a great time. But no one wants to come in smelling like smoke or choking on it when the wind blows the wrong way. That's why a smokeless fire pit from Solar Stove is the superior way to experience those outdoor moments. I've had a Solar Stove for a little while. Uh, Now that the weather's getting cooler, I find myself using it more and more. It's uh, super convenient. The fact that it's smokeless is great. I don't have to worry about just reeking of smoke when I'm done with it. I can just sit outside, enjoy these cool evenings, and stay warm and toasty uh, around a little smokeless fire. It's absolutely great. I cannot recommend it enough. It's a new year, so what better time is there to upgrade your backyard with a Solo Stove Fire Pit? It's a perfect way to get outside, spend more time with the people you love. Solo Stove Fire Pits are brilliantly engineered. They're made with premium-grade 304 stainless steel and a 360-degree airflow system that maximizes efficiency while minimizing smoke. They're easy to light with a few bits of starter. Your fire will be blazing in minutes. So shop now, get up to 30% off fire pits all month long, and use promo code BLACKBOX down at checkout to get an extra $10 off plus a lifetime warranty and free 30-day returns. Just go to solostove.com. Remember, you get $10 off when you use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show about deep fakes with Nina Schick. We're no longer going to know what's authentic and what's synthetic. And not only that, it's going to become accessible to everyone. Porn is the beginning. The creations were just unlike anything anyone had seen before. This is a real live video where the celebrity is moving her face. She's got different expressions. I can make a nude image of your sister, your wife, your mom from a single photo, for example, from Facebook. Minors are being targeted as well, young girls. We are living at a time where there's gonna be more disruption and flux than potentially has ever been in the history of humanity. And the reason for that is because of the exponential technological change that's coming our way. What is this information ecosystem that's basically come into existence in the past 30 years? It's going to take some time for society to catch up. To learn more about how we can avoid being duped by deepfakes, check out episode 486 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. So the horizontal stabilizer structure was found inverted in the aft section of the airplane wreckage. The horizontal stabilizer jack screw was severed on its lower end about one and a half inches above the drive assembly. A crack about four inches long extended longitudinally from the jack screw's fractured end toward the upper gimbal support structure. The jack screw drive assembly was aft of its installed location and was embedded in the lower horizontal stabilizer structure. 
The damage done to the plane when the ATV moved aft made it so it would not be possible for the crew to regain control of the aircraft. And the fact that the jack screw drive assembly was aft of its installed location is indicative of something hitting it and shoving it back. The investigator said that, you know, obviously the plane crashed. If they're investigating a plane crash, the jack screw drive assembly could be broken, but typically they would expect it to be broken forward. The fact that it was shoved back was, in, was definitely evidence that it was impacted by the ATV, which caused it to, to get broken and shift backwards. Okay. And why is it typically forward? Like, let's say a plane hits the ground nose first, all the momentum pushes it forward. Okay. Yeah. That, okay. So it, that would, makes it, sense. it was all the forces, it would snap in that direction. Yeah. So the NTSB determined that the loadmaster did not follow National Airlines procedures when securing the vehicle. He used 24 straps for each ATV and 26 for each Cougar. But the procedures call for 32 straps and 46 straps. Oh, that's, a, that's way off. It's, yeah, it's pretty low. However, that being said, National Airlines procedures did not incorporate the required safety-critical cargo securing information from the airplane and the cargo handling systems manufacturer's manual. National Airlines procedures omitted the required information from Boeing and Telair weight and balance manuals regarding cargo restraining methods outlined and instead contained incorrect restraining methods for special cargo loads. So that being said, even though the loadmaster didn't follow the procedures, the procedures themselves were wrong. They were wrong or they weren't included? The correct procedures were not included, which means the instructions he had were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So it's two different ways to look at it. You know, uh, after Boeing examined this, you know, obviously the 747 is a Boeing plane, you know, and looked at the, the way that the straps were tied down, they said that the amount of straps that the loadmaster had used was less than half than what was actually needed to secure this type of cargo. Wow. It gets complicated. Like, so when you tie, like if you picture a tie down in your head and if it's like parallel with the floor, let's say zero degrees, it can hold, you know, a certain amount of weight. Let's say 5,000 pounds, right? Uh Uh-huh. If you then move that strap, so instead of being parallel to the ground, it's at a 45 degree angle holding weight, then, you know, it might hold off the top of my head, I don't remember the exact amount, but it, let's say it might hold 50% of that mm-hmm. weight. Yeah. And then if you move it all the way straight up to a 90 degree angle, it can't, it shouldn't hold anything. That's 0%. So it's like, it's not just necessarily the number of straps you're using. It's also the angle at which you connect all of this and how much load that they're allowed to, or that they're capable of holding at that yeah, point. Yeah. And probably where they're connected. Because if you had them all connected to say the same point on the plane. Right. Then, then that wouldn't it could work. could be too much. Yeah. You right. kind of have to like, like Spider-Man web it, right? <laughs> like, that's, that's a good way to think about it. Yeah, and uh, you have to put, like, you have to cover that thing with straps. I mean, I'm sure you've probably done it. I've done it where it's like, you have to move something in the bed of a pickup. You're like, yeah, yeah. just put a bungee cord or two on it. It's fine. Yeah, you know, that's totally different when you're moving like an 18 ton vehicle or you're moving five vehicles yeah. that weigh between 12 and 18 tons. You want to make sure you have plenty of straps on them. Yeah. So anyway, going back to this, Cargo Operations Manual, which you know, contained guidance for the loadmasters, it did not define the individual tie-down allowable loads for the various components in the cargo system, such as the available seat tracks. It did not specify that each tie-down attachment point may be used to react load in only one direction, and it did not consider the full capacity of the attached fittings very dependent on the measured strap angle. So let's talk about the strap angle. Like I said, the attachment points should only be receiving load from one direction and not multiple ones. So you can't like put it two different directions off of one point to hold it, you know, from going forward or back. It's one direction only. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like if you imagine like a hole that you're attaching, like, you know, let's say a strap to, you can only have the straps coming from one direction. 
yeah. like let's say to prevent movement back you can't have it front and back at the same time so the ntsb concludes that although the loadmaster did not follow national airlines procedures for securing the special cargo load the procedures were deficient to the extent that even if they were followed, they could not have enabled him to properly load and restrain a special cargo in accordance with the manufacturer and supplemental type certificate holder requirements. So they said, yeah, you know, the loadmaster, he did it wrong, but even if he did it by the book, it wouldn't have been right. Yeah. But I, I'm curious, even if he did it by the book, how, was the book better than what he did? Yeah, the, the book recommended more straps than what he used. Like I said, he put 24 straps on each ATV, the book called for 32. Uh, then he put 26 straps on each Cougar and the book called for 46. Okay. So it's that being said, those numbers probably still weren't even enough. And on top of that, a lot of key details that we went over were missing. Like you can only have loads in one direction. Uh, you got to take into account the angle that all these straps are tied down in. Like there's a lot more. It's, it's not just cut and dry. Yeah. Oh, this many pounds, this many straps. It's much more complicated than that. So the chief loadmaster for National Airlines developed procedures without any coordination with the flight operations or safety personnel and developed the loadmaster training without any involvement from the director of training. He stated he developed the content for the loadmaster training course by referencing materials from various other companies and cutting and pasting from a lot of other manuals. So he just kind of made up the training and there was no real method behind it, which is scary, scary to think about. Yeah. yeah. Although the loadmaster's training file indicated that he received initial and recurrent training, the course content list did not include special cargo loads, which this was. Also, the effectiveness of the training is highly questionable because it would have been based on the airline's incorrect procedures. So <laughs> it's like the procedures were bad to begin with at their core. So you, yeah. can't, you can't really go anywhere from there. Like if you're already starting off with bad information, it, it only gets worse. Yeah. Therefore, the NTSB concludes that although National Airlines provided the accident loadmaster with initial and recurrent training, this training was deficient to the extent it could not have provided him the knowledge and skills necessary to properly load and restrain a special cargo load in accordance with the manufacturer and supplemental type certificate holder requirements. So the training was just bad. Yeah. The FAA stated that both operations and airworthiness inspectors had oversight responsibility for the duties related to the loading of the aircraft. However, FAA Order 8900.1 outlines no specific guidance for either the principal operations inspector or the principal maintenance inspector related to duties or procedures of cargo handling personnel. The principal operations inspector for National Airlines based his review of loadmasters on other carriers' best practices, and the principal maintenance inspector considered loadmasters as part of operations. So <laughs> um, it's like the order was kind of vague and didn't say who was in charge. One of the people who would have been in charge kind of didn't really develop his own training or his own criteria. He just kind of like copied other carriers. And then the other person who would have been in charge said, well, it's the other guy's responsibility. Yeah. And this is after the fact? This is at the time. Okay. I guess it was like a gray area. There was like some overlap. Which shouldn't be, yeah. It just shouldn't be, yeah. And just for clarity, the principal operations inspector considered loadmasters an extension of the captain being given the authority to load the airplane together. So they were just like, I don't know, kind of like no one really knew who was in charge of that, I guess. And the person who did end up taking responsibility didn't really do a great job at it. The NTSB is concerned that the FAA decides the oversight of the safety critical duties of cargo handling personnel between the authority of the principal operations inspector and the principal maintenance inspector with no clear guidance as to how each inspector should provide oversight of these personnel and procedures. 
Under FAA Order 8900.1, the FAA is required to perform cockpit and route inspections on national airlines operations. The principal operations inspector had attempted to conduct these inspections, but could not because of the State Department restrictions on inspector travel into Afghanistan. Similarly, the principal maintenance inspector could not provide direct surveillance of mechanics overseas. As a result, FAA inspectors had never performed any on-route cockpit inspections of national airlines, Boeing 747 cargo flight operations, and had not performed a ramp inspection since 2012 in Dubai. So it was kind of like a weird thing where there was supposed to be in-route surveillance and oversight, but because it was Afghanistan and it was difficult to get in Uh and out of, the inspectors had difficulty doing that. Yeah. So it's just like... Typically, again, typically something you don't encounter, Uh typically something that wouldn't happen. But, you know, this was just such a long ongoing deal with the military in Afghanistan. It's just something that I guess that kind of fell through the cracks. Yeah. So often we talk about that's what leads to so many incidents that we talk about. It's just like small things that add up. And over time, it just ends up causing an accident. Yeah. Like the safety nets one by one. Yeah, they, they fail. Right. And the FAA considers on-route inspections as one of its most effective methods of accomplishing air transportation surveillance objectives and responsibilities. And the evaluation of airman duties and flight deck procedures is a highly critical item scheduled to be performed every six months. So every six months, and they hadn't had one since the prior year in Dubai. Hmm. Such inspections provide FAA inspectors the opportunity to observe how personnel apply procedures and to ask questions of those personnel. When inspectors cannot accomplish the inspections due to resource shortfalls or other restrictions, the items are carried over into the next month. According to the Principal Operations Inspector and Principal Maintenance Inspector for National Airlines, when they could not accomplish the surveillance, they would note the elevated risk for further assessment. So they were just like, oh, can't do this, you know, and just Mm -hmm. like chalking it up to like, I guess, do it later. Next month. Yeah. However, FAA Notice 8900.261 references no limitations on the number of times that these non-resource surveillance items can be deferred. Instead, non-resourced items may be canceled. So there wasn't even a limit, right? (laughs) You would think like you could only roll it over so far. This is saying there really was no limit and it might eventually even be canceled. So if you could just push it, push it, push it, push it. And then cancel it. Yeah. The NTSB had made safety recommendations following an accident in 2004 that addressed these issues with the Department of Defense. The NTSB is concerned that despite these previous assurances from the FAA, that it had made improvements to its oversight procedures for Department of Defense contract operations. Its oversight of National Airlines Boeing 747 operations was inadequate to detect critical deficiencies in the operator's cargo handling procedures. So the NTSB just kind of pointing the finger at the Department of Defense and the FAA saying like, you guys should know better. We've talked about this before. Mm -hmm. And the NTSB recognizes the unique oversight challenges presented by operators that provide air transportation services to support Department of Defense contracts and locations subject to State Department restrictions on inspector travel. However, for operations that have been subject to repeated deferrals of surveillance tasks, risks that might otherwise be detected can persist or increase. So, I mean, they're they're saying, like, we understand the State Department makes it difficult to get people in there, but this is just going to increase risk of accidents like this. Like, you got to come up with a solution for this. Yeah. Obviously, it's just like there's no cut and dry easy way to do it, but it seems like you have time. Come up with a process and procedure to do this. Um, You know, by this point, the U.S. had been in Afghanistan for 12 years. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You would would think that they would have worked something out by then. Anyway, we'll go over uh, the findings here. 
before we get to the findings, I just realized uh-huh. I didn't clear something up earlier. Okay. I said that Al-Qaeda uh, immediately took credit for this. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For this incident. Obviously not. You know, yeah. The, nope. the, 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 unless the, 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 Al-Qaeda was also the loadmaster. Right. Unless they gave bad training to National Airlines loadmaster. Uh, no, they were not responsible. I think they just saw it as an opportunity to try to... Um, Take credit for it, you know. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh, in these investigations, you know, they look for any evidence, of course, of like gunfire. They can see if there's any explosives, if there was a fire on board before the plane hit. Like all of that stuff's investigated, and they found no evidence of uh, any terrorism or Al Qaeda involvement. It was just they wanted to take credit for it. So anyway, I, anyway, I just realized right, as I was yeah. starting the findings, like, oh, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't clear that up. Well, I didn't explicitly say we explained what happened, but we didn't explicitly say Al Qaeda was not responsible for this. Okay, anyway, back to the findings. Let's go ahead and get those started. Had the National Airlines chief loadmaster consulted the required manufacturer's weight and balance manuals, he could have determined that the intended load of five vehicles could not be properly secured in the airplane in accordance with the tail-rigid cargo safety requirements. At most, only one mine-resistant ambush-protected all-terrain vehicle could be transported. And this wasn't a weight thing. So even with these five vehicles, if I remember right, this 747 was 200,000 pounds under its max takeoff weight. So it could have held much more. Uh-huh. But because this is, you know, like we said, it's special cargo and you know, it's this particular vehicle is so heavy. Realistically, they should be able to only move one of these vehicles at a time. One? In they the had, plane. What, wait, they yeah. had, what, five? Five, yeah. Oh my God. I guess it's because the weight is distributed so differently than normal, right? Like it's right. so heavy and so dense. Right, yeah, dense. And, you know, the way that they have to tie it down, they have to use so much rigging for it that realistically they should only be doing one. But again, it's not a weight limit. This, this 747 still had 200,000 pounds of cargo, an extra 200,000 pounds of cargo it could have taken. It's just the way that this load has to be secured. Uh, that means that they should only be taking one at a time. Although the flight crew members and the loadmaster were aware that the cargo moved during the previous flight, they did not recognize that this indicated a serious problem with the cargo restraint methods. Like we said, they even talked about it, but yeah, uh, they didn't do anything about it. I guess they underestimated the danger of it. The airplane's loss of pitch control was the result of improper restraint of the rear mine-resistant ambush-protected all-terrain vehicle, which allowed it to move aft through the aft pressure bulkhead and damage hydraulic system number one and two and the horizontal stabilizer drive mechanism components to the extent it was not possible for the flight crew to regain pitch control of the airplane. So this was a, an interesting investigation for the NTSB because they had to go to Afghanistan, you know, to Bagram uh-huh. to look at the wreckage. They carried out their investigation there. Then they had to fly back to the United States to finish up the investigation. So once they leave, you know, they only shipped some of the wreckage back, some key components back to the United States. So it's like they had to figure out as much as they could while they were there on the ground. So they came up with this theory that we're talking about now about, you know, the, the plane, about yeah. the the vehicle shifting and knocking out the hydraulics, hitting the black boxes. But when they got back to the United States and they started running simulations, they saw that even if the weight shifted and the hydraulics and black boxes were knocked out, that the plane was recoverable. Really? Yeah. The real key here, the real thing that doomed this flight was when the vehicle hit the jack screw. Once the jack screw got damaged, this plane was not saveable. The jack screw, the big, big old... Screw yeah. that we talked about that yeah that moves the, the horizontal, horizontal stable. stabilizer yeah exactly even if it had gone through knocked out those hydraulic systems hit the aft pressure bulkhead if the jack screw had remained intact this plane was salvageable once they lose the jack screw they can't control that horizontal stabilizer 
they have no pitch control, then there's nothing they can do at that point. Yeah. Because if, if that if they'd still been able to control the pitch, they could have like slowly gone back down, right? Right. They could have nosed it back down and yeah. a- accounted for the shift in the center of gravity and the shift in the weight. But it was without the jack screw, it was impossible. Uh, and in fact, it's interesting the way that they figure it, this some of this stuff out. Like I said, I'm going to post the video on our social media so you, you can watch it to understand this part. But when they looked at the video of the plane coming down and crashing onto the ground, uh-huh. you know, and looking at it, they realized not all of the gear went up after the, the pilots had, uh, you know, called for gear up, that some of the gear was still down. And that's how they figured out that some of the hydraulic systems were inoperative and some of them were still working because some gear is controlled by one hydraulic system and that was still down when it was damaged and other gear controlled by an undamaged hydraulic system went up like it should have. And when was this? When did it go up? Oh, I remember right after takeoff, they called for gear up. Coincidentally, it's around the same time everything went wrong. Okay, so you're not saying it was damaged before. You're saying it had damaged that early, that qu- yeah. s- quickly. Almost immediately when they rotated. Gotcha. It went backwards. But it's, it's really interesting to hear them have that level of expertise because I watched that video so many times because uh, I think uh, it's really interesting. And I never noticed that. But it's like, oh, like the things that they can pick up on, like, look, this gear's down and this gear isn't. That means that some hydraulic systems were working and some weren't. It's like, oh, that's you know super interesting to me because I love this kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, I got I got sidetracked there. <laughs> well, okay, I I might have while we were talking about this video, I looked it up. That's crazy. Oh, it's scary, right? It is crazy. It looks like the plane goes up and then like it's tied to a string or something, and it just can't. It's like it's tethered to the ground. You you see what I meant? But when I say like it stops moving for a second, yeah, and it just, just like kind of stuck there. Yeah, it's like it's stuck on a tether and then just goes well. That is, it's, and there's, there's like cars driving right by it. Yeah. The cars are driving along the perimeter of the airfield. The, yeah. uh, the plane, you know, crashed right, uh, inside the airfield. And these are like right on the out, the, the vehicles are right outside the perimeter of the, of the airfield. It's wild looking. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, back to the <laughs> sorry, findings. We're, we both, we both got distracted. Like I said, there was no evidence that it, there was an explosive device or hostile act that were factors in this accident. Although the loadmaster did not follow National Airlines procedures for securing the special cargo load, the procedures were deficient to the extent that, if followed, they could not have enabled him to properly load and restrain a special cargo in accordance with the manufacturer and supplemental type certificate holder requirements. So like we said, he didn't follow the requirements in his book, but even if he did, they were wrong, insufficient. They were, yeah, they were not, they were not adequate to do the job. Although National Airlines provided the accident loadmaster with initial and recurrent training, this training was deficient to the extent it could not have provided him the knowledge and skills necessary to properly load and restrain a special cargo load in accordance with the manufacturer and supplemental type uh, certificate holder requirements. So again, they're just really reinforcing the fact that the operating procedure was deficient. Operating and training and everything. Everything, yeah. The FAA did not provide adequate oversight to ensure that National Airlines cargo operations manual reflected the correct information and guidance from the airplane and cargo handling system manufacturers that specified how to safely secure the cargo. So kind of blaming the FAA for not catching that and for not giving them the correct information in their operations manual. The lack of clear guidance regarding FAA inspector responsibility for the oversight of cargo handling personnel resulted in minimal oversight of these areas at National Airlines and enabled the persistence of critical safety deficiencies. Like we talked about, there are two different people who could have overseen this mm-hmm. and no one was really sure who was in charge. The NTSB puts that on the FAA for not being clear about it. Yeah. 
When circumstances such as FAA inspector travel restrictions or resource shortfalls result in the repeated deferral of required surveillance tasks, an alternative method of risk reduction could help mitigate risks until the surveillance task can be completed. So again, it's like, if you can't do these inspections like you're supposed to, let's come up with an, another method. Let's do something, right? Mm-hmm. Let's not just let it sit there and continue to, to be a problem. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was National Airlines' inadequate procedures for restraining special cargo loads, which resulted in the loadmaster's improper restraint of the cargo, which moved aft and damaged hydraulic systems numbers 1 and 2 and horizontal stabilizer drive mechanism components, rendering the airplane uncontrollable. Contributing to the accident was the FAA's inadequate oversight of National Airlines' handling of special cargo loads. So kind of you know sharing the blame between National Airlines and the FAA for not having better oversight. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's some recommendations that came out as a result of this. Revise the guidance material in Advisory Circular 120-85, Air Cargo Operations, Chapter 201, to specify that an operator should seek FAA-approved data for any planned method for restraining special cargo load for which approved procedures do not already exist, and remove the language in the AC that states that procedures other than those based on FAA-approved data can be used. So just really saying... If it's not in the manual, ask the FAA. Mm. You know, make sure that the way special loads are being restrained is correct and is safe. Create a certification for personnel responsible for the loading, restraint, and documentation of special cargo loads on transport category airplanes and ensure that certification process includes procedures, training, and duty hour limitations and rest requirements consistent with other safety-sensitive certificated positions. So... Create a certification, like mm-hmm. standardize this yeah. and, and make sure that, you know, it's obviously this is a key piece of safety. You know, let's treat it as such. Yeah, yeah. Add special emphasis item to the FAA order regarding National Flight Standards Work Program guidelines for inspectors of Part 121 cargo operators to review their manuals to ensure that the procedures, documents, and support in the areas of cargo loading, cargo restraint, and methods for securing cargo on transport category airplanes are based on relevant FAA-approved data with particular emphasis on restraint procedures for special cargo that is unable to be loaded via unit loading devices or bolt components. So again, just more procedures. (laughs) Make sure that things are written out explicitly for safety. Mm -hmm. Include specific guidance in the FAA inspector handbook that defines responsibilities for principal inspectors for the oversight of an operator's loading, restraint, and documentation of special cargo loads. So just more FAA oversight for the inspectors. Very clear, defining the responsibilities, yeah. who does what, and documenting it. And the last one here, provide initial and recurrent training for all principal inspectors who have oversight responsibilities for air carrier cargo handling operations that specifically address operator cargo procedures, documents, restraint, and support for technical decisions related to special cargo loads. So again, training. That's like That's my favorite... Thing to ever come out of any incident <laughs> is more and better training because that's always what it boils down to. Yeah. It's like, what was the training? Was the training deficient? You know, yeah. more training. Let's let's standardize it, certify it. Like every one of these makes absolute sense. Yeah, and I think about it, the number of times that it was like, oh, the mechanical thing just broke on its own is very rare. Yeah, like it's almost all about bad training or. Bad decision make. Yeah. Yeah. Someone makes the wrong. It's either like crew resource management or Mm -hmm. some other bad training. (laughs) Like, especially ever since the introduction of crew resource management. Yeah. It's like there's no excuse for this happen. I guess in this case, you know, this is all 
Loadmaster and cargo specific. Loadmaster. So, <laughs> yeah, are you gonna get new business cards printed, Chris? <laughs> no, I won't. <laughs> Not okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sorry. Oh God. <laughs> uh, so I know you sometimes ask about the legal aftermath of some yeah. of these cases. This one was interesting. The most recent information I can find was from 2017, which would have been four years after the incident. Uh-huh. But obviously, it's some years ago now. I can't really find any information after that. So I'm just going to read the most recent thing that we were able to find as of 2017. Okay. So National Air Cargo was taken to court. The jury awarded the estate of Captain Brad Hassler a total of $47.25 million in damages. Oh, whoa. The estate of First Officer Jamie Brokaw was awarded $43 million. The estate of Captain Jeremy Lipka, the off-duty pilot in the cockpit, was awarded $25.5 million. And each of these awards included an amount of $5 million for the shock and fright of each of the men experienced from the time of takeoff until the time of the airplane's impact with the ground. That's a lot of money. A lot more than most passengers get from what, at least what we've discussed. Yeah. If I had to guess, I would say it's probably because the printed procedures of the cargo operator were bad to begin with. Mm. There's clear culpability there. Yeah. And maybe because it was nothing, it wasn't even the plane, nothing about the pilots or any of their thing that caused it. It was just the, and maybe military, the fact that it was a military thing might have had to do with it as well. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's not the military who gets sued for this. It's, you know, National Air Cargo. It's it's a civilian contractor. So I don't think the military is involved in that at all. Other than, you know, they hired this contractor to move the equipment for them. I'd be curious, though, because the like the pilot was awarded almost double what the backup pilot was awarded, but they both perished. And yeah, I don't I, I was wondering the same thing. I don't know how they came up with those numbers. On top of not being a pilot, I'm also not a lawyer. So yeah. <laughs> uh, reading legal briefs is very difficult, uh, at least aviation i somewhat understand yeah having to having to try to read through a legal brief or uh, a judgment like this i would have no idea what i'm looking at. i'd be like well this is english <laughs> uh but i don't know if i could say any more beyond that let's get a lawyer pilot on the phone <laughs> <laughs> no no we're we're good let's, uh, let, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that, that that's just it just stood out to me to me it's weird it's like if you're gonna award some it's they were all they all died it's i mean yeah maybe um you know it has something to do with the captain reputation or something maybe they got maybe a reputation or maybe like in the process of this incident him feeling responsible for this even though it wasn't his fault well you say wait you say him feeling responsible for it but didn't he die as it's happening you know oh. like as the plane's crashing be like you know uh, what did i do wrong you know what what can i do to fix this but ultimately it's like it was all futile in the end yeah yeah i guess i could see that too like the in the the tragedy of the moment of being like oh i've yeah yeah like thinking that maybe he had done something when in reality it was not his fault at all yeah but that that's it that's uh national airlines flight uh 102 uh slightly unusual for us what's up okay so in the video this explodes big this is like a it's a big big explosion. explosion is it because the the plane is full of fuel and the way in which it hit down or is it the military equipment on on it like well the, the plane had just refueled and it was uh-huh. getting ready for a flight so it probably had a lot of fuel still on board and on top of that you know the way it hits it kind of pancakes down you know all of the the fuel is in the wings and in that center of the plane mm. so it probably you know it's all smashed down and all the fuel probably splashed out 
you know, when it all ignites, it all just kind of catches fire. And it's probably just the fuel being, you know, thrown from the plane as yeah. it's crashing that I, con- that leads to the fire. I guess it also almost it almost falls like vertic- vertically down, like mm-hmm. straight on the what is that Y axis down? Yes. Versus a lot of times crashes if they're gliding in or even nose down, like what yeah. some people might pi- might picture. But this just almost, yeah, like it just kind of almost f- goes up and then just falls flat straight down mm-hmm. which might have just more yeah like literally more fuel to the fire yeah. and just like threw it out or like it just like splashed out and carried the fire out with it yeah terrible god i mean this is such such an awful incident because it was so preventable like things were just done wrong and yeah. it was like we keep saying it was no fault of the pilots i mean they did everything if the jack screw just hadn't been damaged they yeah. could have saved this plane but the fact that the the vehicle went through the jack screw uh, made it impossible to recover. The only good thing I'll say is at least no one on the ground was injured because it totally yeah. could have happened. Looking at this video, there's like people driving around like right by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's amazing that yeah nobody on the ground got hurt. The other thing that was interesting, and I, we might have talked about it before, the fact that the black box is in the back of the plane threw me for a loop because I was yeah, like, typically they're in the back in order to avoid um, impact. Hmm. So it's like when you hmm. think about like planes coming down nose first, like the bulk of the forces being hit up there. That's why they'll normally put them uh, back in the tail. Yeah. And we might have talked about it. Yeah, we should do an episode sometime. Maybe we can do a supplemental episode about black boxes and about their construction and maybe like the evolution over time. Because we've talked about different types, like the metal uh, yeah. tape, even like reel to reel tapes were used for a mm-hmm. while. And now, of course, you know, we have like solid state memory which is much more durable. And the fact that they're orange, not black. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true, true. Uh, I think it just makes them easier to find. Yeah. But yeah, maybe, maybe we'll do uh, a supplemental episode about that. We, I had someone on social media, I think someone on Instagram message suggesting that. I don't remember who it was. Uh, and I think it's a good suggestion. We should, we should look into yeah. that. But anyway, that's National Airlines Flight 102. Uh, typically we do, you know, a lot of passenger planes. This one, you know, this one's a military contractor, not quite a military incident. It still uses like a civilian plane that people are familiar with. So I thought it would still be interesting for yeah. uh, our listeners to hear about. I thought it was super interesting. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's fascinating. But anyway, um, hope you enjoyed it. And we'll be back again next week with another episode. Thank you. Tell your friends and family and pets. Be like Booger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>